scriptures to the letter of Jude, second last book in the New Testament, just a short letter, we'll read the whole thing, uh, Jude in the Pew Bible, page 1308. And we'll see how Jude, Jude writes here about contending for the faith, and he also writes about those who abandon the faith. And as we look at Lord's Day 7 this afternoon about true faith, we'll see how uh, what Jude writes sheds light on what true faith is all about. So the Word of God, letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, 
they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So far, the letter of Jude 5.23. There we have the Word of God summarized by the church and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 7 concerning true faith. What is true faith? And that will be the focus of the preaching this afternoon, Lord's Day 7. Question 20, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So far then, the articles of our Christian faith, the summary of Scripture. In response to the preaching, we will sing from Psalm 91, 
the stanzas 1, 2, and 5 about how the Lord protects His people and preserves their life. Psalm 91, 1, 2, and 5. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in Lord's Days 5 and 6, you will recall we came to see how God reveals the way back to Himself. We confess that we cannot possibly find our own way back. We require a special man who would be both God and man at the same time. And the gospel given to us in Scripture announces loud and clear that that man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the only mediator provided by God to deal fully and completely with all our sins. So now comes Lord's Day 7 with its question, who is it that benefits from all the work of Jesus? Does everybody benefit automatically? And if it's not everyone automatically, then who is it specifically who benefits and what must take place before such a person can be saved? So Lord's Day 6 has identified the Savior. Now we need to know how you and I and anyone else can be connected to the Savior. That's the issue in Lord's Day 7. Must we do something? If so, what? So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. God unites us to Christ by true faith. God unites us to Christ by true faith. We'll see the people of the faith and the faith of the people. Well, question 20 raises an important matter when it asks, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? That reference to Adam takes us back a couple of Lord's Days. The Catechism is just recalling what we've already seen in Lord's Days 3 and 4, namely that in the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, the whole human race fell. When Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam was punished, we were punished. When our first parents perished, we perished with them. Adam, we saw that, he's not only our biological father, he is that too, but he's equally our representative in God's covenant with mankind. And as it went with our representative, so it went with all the rest of us whom He represented, the whole human race. So it's much more than wishful thinking when the Catechism asks, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? There's a certain logic that is, is at work there. Doesn't the Bible call Jesus the last Adam? Doesn't Jesus become our new representative? Could it not be that just as punishment went out automatically through the whole human race, so also salvation goes out automatically 
to the whole human race? It's a fair question. The answer of Scripture is straight and simple, and the Catechism gives it, no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. Where does the Bible teach this? Well, in a number of places. One of the most straightforward is John 3.16 and following. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's the promise. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then comes the other side of the coin. Whoever believes in Christ or in the Son of God is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So that's just one of a number of passages in Scripture which tell us very, very clearly that salvation is not handed out to all humans without exception, but it is given to only to those who accept all the benefits of Christ by placing faith or trust in Him. So, we can see that there certainly is a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam, but there's also differences in those two situations. The first Adam was the biological father of the entire human race and in that way stood as our representative. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, was not a biological father at all. Instead, he is a spiritual father of a new human race. And he stands as that new human race's representative. Adam's family is tied to Adam by blood and blood alone. Christ's family is tied to Christ by faith and faith alone. God covenanted once in Adam with all of humanity, but now He covenants in Christ with believers and their children. What Adam did in the Garden of Eden, he did for all of those he represented, which was the family of man, the human race. What Jesus did in the other garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and on the cross of Calvary, He did for all those He represented, namely the family of God. So, being born as a human connects us to Adam, the first Adam, but it doesn't automatically necessarily connect us to Christ. You need faith for that. Now, at this point, it might be helpful to clear up some questions with respect to God's covenant and faith. Doesn't the Bible teach that God covenants with, or you could say makes a relationship with, believers and their children? Isn't there a blood connection there that's honored? When a child is baptized, is he not baptized into the name of Christ, and is he not sanctified in Christ. 
doesn't that mean that a, a baptized child is, a, is also a member of God's family? Well, the answer to all those questions is yes. A child of believing parents is a blessed child, not because of the parents, not because the child is innocent, but because of one thing, God, in His grace, has chosen to extend that relationship, that covenant, to the child of believers as well. It's God who grants the child a place in that relationship, that covenant. He or she stands to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He or she is a member of Christ's church. He or she has a position of privilege as a child of God. That position distinguishes that child from a child of unbelievers. All of that is, is true and it is wonderful, but it also brings a tremendous responsibility. The demand to respond to God in faith, that's the child's obligation as he or she grows up. We have to understand that such a child, a covenant child, can also lose their position in God's family. That child can come of age and rebel. That child can come of age and become unsanctified. It's possible for a child of Christian parents to grow up and break God's covenant, spurn the riches of their own inheritance by refusing to embrace Jesus in true faith. The covenant relationship, it provides a, a huge advantage and great blessing for the child of believers, but by itself, it does not mean a guaranteed salvation. What is required from all as they mature is faith. Jude helps us understand this, that letter of Jude. You might want to flip to that letter a moment. I'll be dealing with some of the verses there. In our reading, Jude mentions a couple of examples of covenant children who spurned the riches God had given them. He speaks of Cain, son of Adam, who did not honor God with the right sacrifices. He also speaks of Korah and his followers. We know that Korah and a couple of hundred men with him rebelled against Moses. Jude describes all of these individuals in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It sounds like a, a lot like the people James was writing about, doesn't it? Favoritism, following their own sinful desires. And the, the people he's describing, that's Jude now, the people he's describing are Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These are men from the tribe of Levi. These are sons of Israel. These were part of the tribe set apart to take care of the tabernacle, full-fledged members of God's covenant. In fact, they were leaders in the church community. And just think of what these men had experienced. They had seen all the plagues come 
from God's hand in Egypt. They had seen his great power. They had seen God send Moses and Aaron to lead the people out. They themselves had been set free from slavery. They had walked through the Red Sea with those walls of water on either side. They had eaten the bread of angels, the manna that God gave. They had received, they had heard God speak His holy law from Mount Sinai. They had worshipped at the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. And yet, despite all of that experience, despite all the covenant blessings, despite the word having been spoken to them by God's own voice, they did not respond in faith. What they were responding with was a look-alike faith. Again, similar to what James writes, a false wisdom. They thought they were going to be the, the great leaders of the church community. They were going to push Moses to the side. They were going to lead Israel. They were unbelievers. If you don't believe in God and submit to God with love in your heart, you're not a believer, and your status in the covenant won't bail you out. It will count against you that you spurned all those blessings the Lord sent you. Korah and his followers and their families were all swallowed up by the earth. So, this has been true all through the history of the, of the world, through the history of God's covenants, faith is a requirement. I'd like you to notice that good works are not mentioned in Lord's Day 7 at all. Only good, only by faith in Jesus Christ does salvation come to us. Salvation not by works, but by faith alone. That was Paul's point in Romans 3, that Famous verse we read a couple of weeks ago, we are justified by faith alone or faith apart from works of the law. So obedience to God's law is not a requirement to become saved. And then we should be clear on what follows. It certainly is a development of being saved, but it's not a requirement to become saved. Obedience, good works, they never count towards salvation, but they are the necessary proofs that we are saved. How else did it become clear that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram didn't have true faith? I mean, they were in the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. They professed to believe in the Lord. They claimed they were God's holy people. They claimed they had the right of leadership. They claimed to have wisdom from above. They had all the words of faith. They were even waving around holy censers as if they were true priests of God, and yet it turns out they weren't even children of God. They were in Israel, but they were not of Israel, and it showed by their disobedience, by their rejection of God's law, and their rebellion against God's chosen leader. Now, we're going to come back to this role of good works, the Lord willing, in Lord's Day 24, but for here in Lord's Day 7, we want to focus on the simple but wonderful gospel truth. We are joined to Christ by faith. We are united to Him by faith alone. 
And when we are united to Him in that way, His accomplishments become our accomplishments. His merits become our merits. That means that our standing before God in His courtroom, our acceptability to the Lord, our, our place in eternal life, our status as permanent members of God's family, it's based entirely on what Christ has done. And since faith is the tie that binds us to Christ, it is through faith that all that belongs to Him comes to us. The catechism in answer 20 is very carefully and biblically balanced when it describes us in this process as being both passive and active. The answer is this, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ, that's the passive, and accept all His benefits, that's the active. The first part is done to us. You and I, we are grafted into Christ by means of true faith. Someone's doing the grafting to us. The second part is something we now are enabled to do, accept all of Christ's benefits. The Catechism expands on this in answer 21 at the very end. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Remember back in Lord's Day 3, we learned that we all have a depraved nature inherited from Adam. We are inclined to God, inclined to hate God and our neighbor. We're not able to do good works in the eyes of God, works that are pure in His eyes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. This is what the catechism now comes back to. My heart, by nature, it's, it's dead, spiritually dead, but the Holy Spirit he comes and makes it alive. And when He makes it alive, this whole heart of mine, then it, that heart in turn becomes alive and active. When He breathes life into my dead nature, when He sets free my enslaved will, I start to spring into action. And it's me who accepts all Christ's benefits. Not I on my own, you understand. But I as made alive, I as enabled, I as moved by the Holy Spirit, I now embrace Christ by faith with all of His merits. This is the very beginning of the regenerated life. It's the very beginning of a, a new inclination being planted in our hearts, a new way of life. To say it briefly, it is God's work. To Him be the glory. And yet, in this work, He employs us. He puts us to work. After all, it's not the Holy Spirit who believes for you and me. No, we believe. That's our act. But we're enabled to believe by the Spirit's power. He's the engine beneath our hood. We, people of the faith, are grafted into Christ by the work of the Spirit. But what exactly then is the faith of the people? That's what question 21 wants to know. What is true 
faith. If true faith is so vital, and it is, for our salvation, so crucial to our being united to Christ, what exactly is it? How can I be sure that I've got it? It's even more important when we notice in the catechism that little word, true. What is true faith? That must mean there is a false faith out there, a fake belief. So, how can we be sure what we've got is the real deal? Well, false faith and false believers turn up quite a bit in Scripture. We've been reading about it in James and in the letter of Jude, we've already mentioned Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were false believers. In Joshua 7, we can read about Achan, who broke God's covenant by stealing precious things out of Jericho. And David experienced numerous hypocrites and turncoats right in the church community and even among his own close followers, as can be seen in a number of his psalms. Think of, the, of Psalm 3, written about his son Absalom, or the psalms that speak about how Saul turned on him, or even his right-hand man Joab turned on David later on. The Lord Jesus also, he had to pronounce judgment over the hypocritical Pharisees. Those were leaders of the church in his day. And Jesus was later sold out by a man who professed to be his disciple and even kissed him on the cheek. Peter had to deal with a lying Ananias and Sapphira, people who pretended to be upright members of the church. Paul experienced abandonment by Demas, who earlier had been a good helper of him. All mentioned here were, were church members, all were covenant people, all professed at one point to believe in God, but all proved to be untrue, to be false, insincere, not true believers. So how then do we distinguish? Well, we've been seeing lately in James that faith without works. That's the fake kind. That's one way to tell. Faith without loving acts of obedience to God's commandments and just words saying that you believe, that's just a lot of hot air. And that's fairly easy to spot. You just have to observe a person's life for a while and how they, whether or not they obey the commandments of God, whether they have a lifestyle like that. But false faith can be also disguised for a while with a facade of good works, with a, an appearance of behavior, something the Bible calls hypocrisy. False faith in that sense, goes along with the crowd, the crowd of believers, says what other believers are saying, moves along with people in and out of church, flows in and out, doing what others do until trouble hits, until a crisis forces action, forces that person to choose between serving God and serving oneself. Like the seed that fell among the rocks, you remember that seed, it springs up quickly, but doesn't last when the heat of the sun falls upon it. The so-called faith withers and dies.
for a while, you can't tell when you have someone like that because they look like they're a true believer. But true faith, true faith sticks it out. True faith lasts. True faith planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it, it, it takes root and it grows and it grows. And you know what? It especially thrives in trouble. Because true faith knows there ain't no other way to place to run. You can't go anywhere else than to Jesus Christ. And so true faith clings to the Lord Jesus for dear life, especially in the day of trouble. True faith is also powerfully active inside a person's heart, changing their thinking and their speaking and their acting. As God's Word is planted in my heart, the Holy Spirit goes to work and, and, and faith springs to life and it, it catches me, catches me off guard. It, it knocks down my, my internal sinful defenses. It takes my heart by storm and it starts changing me, making me into a new creature, a child of God who loves the Father in heaven. False faith doesn't have any of that power. It's only an imitation and only for a while. It puts on an outer shell of Christianity. It carries on with appearances in order to be thought of as a Christian. But in private, in private, there's no love for God. In private, there's no crying out to the Lord for salvation. In private, there's no desire to live forever with the one true God. What you are in private is what you are before the face of God, regardless of what people see in public. True faith is putting your trust in God, surrendering your life to Father, Son, and Spirit. The Catechism fleshes this out with two specifics. True faith, we confess, is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. The Holy Spirit works it in our heart to acknowledge the, the, the Bible then as God's Word and to receive it as infallible, as true in every respect. I wonder if we think about that enough. We might take it for granted because it's something that's talked about since we were kids, and that's actually a good thing. It's almost second nature to us to see the Bible as God's holy word, to be prized and valued and studied and read and meditated and followed as absolute truth from above. But now just think about this carefully. Why? Why do you accept the Bible as the Word of the living God. Has someone proven it to you? Could I or anyone prove it scientifically to you that God wrote this book? Can I demonstrate with logic and reason that it must be the case that this book is from God and the words of this book are true in every respect? No, I can't. 
and no one can. It comes down to faith, to trusting God's claims and the Spirit's testimony about this book. That's why there are many who think the Bible is just another book because they don't have the work of the Spirit in their hearts, so they read it as literature, like Jordan Peterson. We were chatting about him at lunch today, and he's on record publicly. He has a lot of respect for this book, but it's not the Word of God as far as he's concerned. We hope and pray that changes for him. But Christians, Christians know. Christians know this is a holy book, God's Word to us. And when you know that without a shadow of a doubt in your heart, that is already big evidence, strong evidence of a true faith. Because it's only by faith that you can believe the Bible to be the Word of God. A Bible in which there are no mistakes, no errors, no contradictions. This is all part of faith. Accepting the Bible as true, all of the Bible as true. I may not be able to reason all of its parts out logically. How could anyone, for example, explain the Trinity? How can I articulate the doctrine of three in one so that we all can understand that logically? How can I explain that souls live on in heaven consciously even while the body lies in the grave? I'm not able to reconcile many truths and paradoxes in the Bible, like God being sovereign and man being responsible. And I don't understand at, at this point in time how Noah could build a boat so big and so secure that it could hold two of every animal plus eight human beings for a period of over one year while floating on top of the waters. That part I haven't myself figured out yet. All those things, when I ponder them, and there's many more, they tangle my mind in thoughts. They leave me without clear answers, and yet I remain utterly convinced, and so do you, that God has all the answers and that all these things are real and true, even if I can't understand them. My feeble reasoning, my imperfect logic, do not trump the faith that God has planted in my heart and so I confess, I believe every last word of this book to be God's honest truth. This is true, everything. Well, that's a massive aspect of faith, but true faith can never leave it at that. Faith, we confess, is a sure knowledge that God's Word is true, but at, at the same time, it's also this, a firm confidence that not only to others, we confess, but also to me, God has granted something. What's He granted? Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, salvation, out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Now, all those things are spoken of in this book. So you have to believe the book to get to those things. But now that you've got to those things, faith says, I believe those things are true also for me. 
not just for the other people in the church, but also for me. That also the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, a sureness, a trust, an assurance that when God promised to save His people, and that promise is written in this book, to save His people from their sins, then my name was on God's list. That when Christ died for His sheep on Golgotha's cross, He was thinking of me personally too. That I'm one of His lambs. True faith is totally convinced that when the Father promised to save whoever would believe in His Son, that that includes me because I know in my soul that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. These are the things that Christians believe, the contents of faith. True faith is never believe what you want. Doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something and, and then stick to it. No. True faith believes God, the one true living God, and what He has said, and it believes everything He said in the Bible. Answer 22 brings that out as well. What must a Christian believe? All that is promised to us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And then what follows is the Apostles' Creed. That's just the oldest summary of the Christian faith, the oldest summary of the key truths of Scripture. I want you to notice it's a summary. Those 12 statements are not a replacement for the, the Word of God itself, for the gospel that's written from Genesis to Revelation. You cannot say, I believe these 12 statements, and then walk away from this. That would be utterly ridiculous and a contradiction in terms. You believe this, and the 12 statements are a summary. The church long ago formulated that simple summary. And we still use it today. And, and why do we still use that ancient summary today? Simply because faith still has the same content. The Bible doesn't change. So the content of true faith never changes. And it's one of the church's tasks to fight for the unchanging content of faith. Did you know that, brothers and sisters? We as church have to fight for the content of faith, for what it is that we believe. That's what Jude was writing about too in verse 3 of his letter. Speaking to Christians there in the midst of a struggle, facing false teachers in their midst and all kinds of malcontents, James, or Jude says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, you could say to fight for the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Once for all. People say, some people say, you know, the church has to get with the times. It's the 21st century. It's 2021. Come on, get with it, church. Get your, your doctrines up to speed to the 21st century. But the church is up to speed. We're up to God's speed. 
which has been true for the 20 centuries before Christ and the 21 centuries after Christ and until the last day and beyond when Christ comes back. There is only one source, source of truth, the Bible, and it does not change because the one God who gave the Bible never changes. And so the faith has been once for all received by the saints. The same faith in Adam is the same faith in Abraham and in David and Peter and Paul and Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Hendrik de Kock, Klaas Skilder. You can name all the believers you want. It's the same faith for you and for me. The church is the pillar and foundation of that truth, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3. And so it will always be our business to stand up for the truth so that God's people may be preserved in the true faith. Preserved. That means kept by God. Because if God grafts us into Christ by the working of His Holy Spirit, do you think God is going to then step back and leave it up to us to stick it out in faith? That's not God's way. Undergirding all the, the fighting for the faith that we have to do at times in the church, undergirding all the struggle of our personal walk with the Lord, is the everlasting arms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons of the Trinity who long ago arranged for our salvation, planned it, purchased it, and are now preserving it forever. All who are of the truth, all who have been chosen by God who are of the truth, they will hear and they will listen. They will follow the shepherd's voice into salvation. And all who are of the truth will press on in the true faith. Why? Because it's God at work in them. Amen. Let's sing Psalm 91, stanzas 1, 2, and 5. <clears throat> 